0: The models all break to the upside if the trust is lost in the system. If the the legacy market cracks, then Bitcoin's going to moon in dollar terms because that marginal seller's like, wait, I don't need to sell. Like I don't want to sell. Like This is the only thing I want to own.
1: Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all doing? All right, so listen, next week I am heading off on a two-week holiday in the Caribbean. It's been a wild four years doing this podcast, but I need a break. need to go and recover from my operation, and honestly, I'm just knackered. So I've booked a two-week holiday, I've recorded a whole bunch of interviews in advance, but I'm intending on just taking a break, being present for my children, and doing absolutely nothing for a couple of weeks. So if I am offline, if you don't hear from me, you now know why. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with the Bitcoin Zoomers. I've got Will Clemente and Dylan LeClaire back on the show. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors, and this week we're kicking off with Exodus Wallet, who I am using for my mobile desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, as you know, because I'm always talking about it, UX is super important to me. So when Exodus reached out and they said, Peter, we want to sponsor your show, I was like, well... I've got to play with the app first, and I did. They crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. The Exodus desktop wallet gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application, and with their mobile wallet, you get to send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And next up, we have CASA, which is the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks are all ways that your Bitcoin can be lost or stolen. But with CASA, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because with a CASA multi-sig wallet, you take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute those wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, you can reach out to me. I have been a Casa customer for a year now. I'm about to renew. You can hit me up in my DMs on Twitter, or you can drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security than right now. If you want to get total peace of mind, you can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming, because they accept Bitcoin. And with the Olympics now on, sportsbet.io has you covered. They have prepared an amazing calendar for you where you can complete daily missions and get rewards in return. All you have to do is complete the mission of the day. Once done, you'll get your reward on the next day. So hurry up because this all ends on August the 8th. You can enjoy the Olympics a little bit more now with sportsbet.io. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is s p o r t s forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today, and we have two Bitcoin Zoomers on the show to make me feel like a proper old bastard. Yes, we've got Will Clemente, who's blown up this year on Twitter with his on-chain analysis. And to join him, I asked Dylan Leclerc to come back after he crushed it with my show with Greg Foss recently. Now, in this one, we get into some of the on-chain analytics, and Dylan gives us a bit of a macroeconomic lesson in why we should be stacking more Bitcoin. But I also wanted to find out how they got interested in Bitcoin and how this is all playing out. These two have a combined age less than mine, Yeah, infinitely smarter than me. So I wanted to understand their journey into Bitcoin and what this also means for education. But honestly, these two give me so much faith that we can pass the Bitcoin baton on to capable hands when us old bastards want to retire. So I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com, or you can jump into my Telegram channel. All right, over to the Zoomers. Right, here we go. It's, uh, it's my Zoomer show. Uh, Will, welcome to the podcast. Will, we haven't, uh, we haven't spoken yet, so uh, welcome.
2: Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me on.
1: You're having uh, you're having a hell of a year, right?
2: Yeah, not too bad. A lot has changed for me over the last uh six, twelve months.
1: Yeah, you've picked up what hundred and fifty thousand Twitter followers and you're now a regular on the number two Bitcoin podcast.
2: <laughs> uh, I see how you slipped that in there. But but um, yeah, it, it, it's been pretty wild though. And I'm still kind of in, in disbelief of how fast it's kind of taken off. So shout out to the Bitcoin
1: well, community. Dude, all well-deserved, man, and we're going to get into that. And Dylan, look, it was great having you on the show uh, recently. I got so much amazing feedback. Um, got a bunch of emails from people saying that you gave them faith in uh, in the youngsters and support the idea that university is probably a waste of time and money. So appreciate you coming back on, dude.
0: Love it. Thanks for having me on.
1: Um, you got a little bit of feedback yourself coming on the show? It was helpful.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, got, a, got a ton of outreach. Um, Foss is the man. It was just uh, in general. It was it was a pretty pretty fun recording. So yeah,
1: yeah. Foss is definitely the man. Well, look, this is um, it's great to get you both on. Uh, this will be a show. I definitely stick in front of my son as well, and I don't mean that in any kind of condescending way, but I just want to show him it's not just old fuckers. Like, actually, do you know what? I, f- I think I figured out beforehand. Remind me, Dylan, how old are you? Twenty. And Well, how old are you?
2: Uh, I'm nineteen.
1: So basically your ages don't even add up to my age. That's how fucking old I am. And I, uh, <laughs> I think it's really important that we have younger people coming in, different perspectives. Um, there's some clear differences with the likes of yourselves. Like, you've grown up in a time that's only known internet and mobile phones, a different kind of gaming culture probably a different approach to a number of things. So I think it's it's really important that we raise up uh, different voices in Bitcoin, especially across the age range. And you two are clearly both very talented. So it's great to get you both on the show. I will do my best not to be just a condescending old twat, especially as you're both smarter than me anyway. So I will do my best. But let's start with Will. Uh, will, you kind of came along into the Bitcoin scene quite recently. You've been blowing up. Like, What happened? How, how did you arrive here? Give us the backstory. It was after
2: my, my freshman year, um, I was doing like this overnight stocking job and I started listening to Preston Pish's podcast. Um, and, you know, of course, he, he's focused on, you know, value investing and the whole Warren Buffett, you know, free cash flow, predicting then the future kind of thing. Um, and, and when you do that, what, what you're basically doing is like making this underlying assumption that um, the, the measurement, the unit of measurement is is sound, right? But of course, we know fiat is not sound. Uh, and so understanding that problem then kind of led me to um, trying to look for the solution and, and that led me to Bitcoin eventually. Um, so you know, I just kind of went down the rabbit hole like everybody else listening to podcasts and all that. Um, and then I, I put out a couple articles about just kind of like Bitcoin's role in the financial system. And then it, I think Preston Pish was the first person who actually retweeted one of my articles. Um, and then I went from like, I had like 500 followers at the time, and then I went to like two or 3,000. And then I, I kept putting out these articles, and people kept um, reposting them. Yeah, and and then I actually listened to um, a podcast you did with Willie. It was in like late December or something like that, um, basically talking about the market from an on-chain perspective. and. Um just, just hearing the way that he kind of described the market was, was really interesting to me because, of course, it's unlike anything in, in traditional finance. So hearing, hearing him on your podcast really kind of sparked my interest. And then I just went down the rabbit hole listening to you know, different, different podcasts, YouTube videos that he was in and, and uh, some of the other you know, more well-known people in the, in the on-chain space and just trying to you know, pick their brains and, and see what they were looking at. And um, from there, it's just kind of like taking a leg of its own.
1: And what were you studying in college?
2: Um, so I've switched my major like four or five times now. I, I went in as management. Then I went to entrepreneurship. I actually started like a small business in my dorm, but it and we ended up like shutting it down because of COVID. Um, and then I went in for computer science. I took like an online computer science course, realized it was not what I thought it was at all, and then ditched that. And then now we're back to finance. So... <laughs>
1: it <laughs> yeah, sounds you like you should of, drop out <laughs> yeah i was gonna say any do you ever think of dropping out like dylan
2: yeah man dylan's been uh putting the pressure on me to drop out for like three months like me dylan and i i don't even know what month it was we met. i mean it's been a long time now that dylan and i have been pretty close keeping in touch but um dylan you know he was way ahead of me in terms of realizing that the opportunity here is just to like Focus on on Bitcoin and the opportunity cost of of not being involved in the space is massive. So he he's been putting the pressure on me for a while, but I'm I'm kind of on the edge. I I want to make sure that um you know I kind of have a you know established income source before I I make that leap. But this semester I'm kind of just taking a uh you know some of my classes off. I'm gonna take like two or three classes instead of the full five.
1: All right, cool, man. Well, listen, look, whatever you do, like. Uh, I'm sure it'd be the right decision. You know, college is right for some people. Is it right for others? Uh, I'm a dropout, but I'm a moron. Uh, Dylan Smart, he dropped out. I'm sure if you did, you will be a success. And I'm sure if you, continuing, you know, finish your college program, that you'll be a success anyway. But the stuff you've been doing is super interesting. You've definitely been, um, you know, making waves through Bitcoin. People love your work that you're doing on Twitter, and you've just got this like mad uh, new following. Like, how how do you take it all in and? What's your kind of you know thoughts on this because you must be kind of weighing up the different opportunities in life, like how much time should I spend on my college work? how much time should I spend on bitcoin? You must be pretty busy,
2: yeah, absolutely like luckily right now i'm I'm on summer, so I haven't really had to you know face like the full blown what's been going on the last couple of months and like weigh that against um you know school and like figure out how to kind of allocate my time that way, but um it's definitely gonna be tricky um you know like just the the outreach by by the Bitcoin community has just been massive, and like I'm still kind of in disbelief that I have like the size of the following that I do because I, you know I think there I personally think there's a lot of people way smarter than me that with much less followers. Uh, but I guess you know people just find the whole on-chain thing really fascinating, so it's it's cool to see other people kind of like take this liking to that as well, um, and, and it's cool to see Willie's following blow up too, and and people really you know find the stuff that he's putting out interesting too.
1: Yeah, but dude, you're going to have people who are way dumber than you with more followers. It's just the fucking way it is. Um, if you're providing if you're providing value, you're going to get followers. Another thing I just want to ask you about, obviously you're studying finance. Um, do you talk much about this to your uh, fellow college mates? Do you talk about it to your friends? What's the kind of view on Bitcoin amongst people your age? Because what I've found is that... Uh, Depending on the age of the people I talk to, there's a completely different response. Uh, when I talk to my son and his mates, none of them see Bitcoin for what it really is. And they just see cryptocurrencies as a whole. Uh, I was chatting to a lad this morning and he was like, he's been plowing into Bitcoin and Doge. He had no understanding of the difference. And he hasn't spent time on it. I mean, I know you two have a, probably have a different perspective because you're closer to it. It's not a hobby thing. This is kind of like a significant part of your life. But talking through to your friends, what's your kind of experience?
2: Yeah, um I'm sure Dylan'll have a a lot of similar things to say that that I do, but I think in general like people still have that very uh you know short attention span, um very short time frame of thinking too. So like people are just looking for what what's pumping and then everyone of course just wants to get on the train of like what's the next coin that's going up and you know group chats I'm in with my friends and stuff I had to leave a lot of them cuz they're just you know just like the the whole Reddit thing. They're just like picking the next train to hop on <laughs> and and they're not necessarily looking for any kind of like long-term investment that they can like, you know, build a future off of. And, you know, like that's the way I see Bitcoin. And it, it is, I think the real challenge for me is trying to get my friends to shift towards that frame of thinking because I think just like subconsciously through like inflationary monetary policy over time, you know, just incentivizing materialism and like short time frame thinking in general. But also, you know, now we have like TikTok and all this stuff, which I don't go on any of that, but a lot of my friends do. And it's just like, you get, you lower people's attention span down to like 15, 20 seconds. So you really need to hook them in that first like interaction or else they're just going to tune out and forget about it. So for me, it's like, trying to trying to get them to shift their thinking into like you know more long term and and like building a future for yourself and understanding yeah maybe bitcoin is going to get outperformed by cumrocket but you know over the next 5 to 10 years you can build a solid foundation for your future on bitcoin which you can't on on you know whatever coin you want to pick so that that's been the biggest challenge for me is like getting getting their um getting them to kind of like shift that underlying frame of thinking. And then also you need to have like some kind of visual, like I use the stock to flow model. I mean, I don't follow it to a T, but I think, I think it's a great way to get people into the space and just get people to understand the correlation between um, Bitcoin scarcity and the price. Right. And so like, I have a lot of friends that literally have no understanding about even basic like supply and demand functions. So having, you know, these, these, you know special colors and stuff and they can follow and see where the scarcity and you know the the supply is going to cut in half and like that that clicks for them so that that's been helpful to me i'm curious uh dylan do do you feel the same way
0: yeah i mean for sure there's definitely um uh you know a high time preference kind of thinking that's ingrained in our society like the reddit thing is so true it's like all you got to do man is you know make an income spend less than you make and stack sats. That's it. And it's like too easy, right? Like just just hold, stack and do nothing and learn. And you can post memes, you can do whatever. Like but it's like no, I'm going to hop from Tesla calls to GME to AMC to Dogecoin to whatever bubble next and um you know, in the end a lot of these people are, you know, maybe they're up in dollars, but uh they're like you know, is are we in hyperinflation now? No, but we're in somewhat of like a hyperinflationary asset bubble, um, and so a lot of these people are just treading water. You know, maybe not even, um, and so it's kind of unfortunate. But uh, I think most people kind of come around to to Bitcoin, and um, you know, the market will will speak to that.
1: It's quite a unique position that you guys have with this because, I mean, I didn't really start on my personal level taking my. Financial future seriously until uh, after I got divorced because I had to rethink my model for saving because essentially my assets got cut by 70%. Um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, essentially what, at 33, 40, 20, 23 years from the kind of age I wanted to retire at if I was to retire at 60. And whilst that feels like a long time, it really isn't when you've lost a lot of what you've done. And, and then again, I didn't really start. Understanding the value of savings until I discover Bitcoin, and you know that's, we're talking about the last four or five years. And even in that period, I've had a, a time when I've been wiped out. Yeah, one of the things I'm trying to say to my son is like, you're 17. You know, you could just put a small amount of money away every month into Bitcoin. By the time you hit my age, you know, this could be a very serious amount of money that you're living on. And it's it's not a huge amount you have to save. But back when I was younger, and I don't mean this in any, any kind of Oh, in my day. But but we didn't have the internet, right? There was no way I could ever have been trading. The only way I ever make money is get a job, save, get a job, save. There wasn't the opportunity to invest in something like Bitcoin. So you guys are in a kind of a unique position where you can get a head start on the next generation because you have this opportunity now, which we didn't have.
0: Yeah, it's a once-in-a-generation thing. I mean, even maybe not even once in a generation. It's like the monetization process of Bitcoin, like a new money coming coming of of age or this you know kind of this the rise of this this new alien technology is like a once in a once in a humanity type thing and that sounds super like maybe that sounds super outlandish to someone that's not like you know studied up and really deep down this rabbit hole but it's true and so like you know i only have one chance at this will only has one chance at this we all do and so like at 18 19 20 years old like yeah, I mean, still fun, still, still like party a little bit, still like you know spend occasionally, but like for the most part, like I'm trying to save as much value as I can for my future self while it's you know still, still this cheap. Like a year ago, I was saving four times as much as I am today in Bitcoin terms, and like that's how you have to think of things if you want to like stay ahead in this in this rat race.
1: Yeah, it's um it's definitely a unique time, and and, and you know what? Well, you make a really good point on the TikTok thing because um. My daughter has TikTok and she shows me it and shows me the videos she's watching and I don't have, I mean, it's on my phone. I've never used it. Um, but there is a thing that came up on Instagram recently. It was like TikTok. It was one of these reels. Uh, and I'd never seen it before. And I was like, I looked at it and I was still there like 40 minutes later, just going through these videos. It's, it's quite addictive to keep watching it, but you suddenly realize you've wasted like a whole hour and then i was thinking well what is what is the total time that she's potentially wasting each week if i'm not sat there monitoring her and how else could that time be used productively and i know she needs to be a kid and enjoy herself but actually these screens have become kind of an addiction they've become a bit of a plague amongst youngsters whereby like you know how could this time be used productively could they be learning a musical instrument you know could they be just you know making something but 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 they're not she's literally addicted to the thing like video after video after video um you know and i do limit time but you can't sit there all time with all the time with somebody and and do that and that's a really good point it's it's everything seems to be this kind of race to the bottom of short time attention you know short-term decision making you know can i make this trade can i make that trade um so if you had to like learn your own self-discipline with this
2: yeah, absolutely. Um like I never read or anything. I did pretty bad in high school and like never really paid attention in class. So I never had had read a book before until like a full book until I got into Bitcoin. Um and and so yeah, that was like a big adjustment for me, but you know, it it's it's weird though when whenever you're interested in what you're doing, it doesn't feel like learning. So this has been the first time in my life where I've been able to read a full book, um, you know, on my own free will, and I'm interested in it, and like I don't want to look at my phone. I want to, I want to finish the book because you know what I'm reading about is so fascinating to me, um, and so yeah, it, it's been cool. I think like that—that's the one thing I never really got was reading is reading is fun when you finally find something that you like, and and I guess all the books I had been reading my whole life they were just. I don't know, I guess they were just crappy books.
1: <laughs> well, has that made you re- like reflect on the education system itself?
2: Um, yeah, I, I personally think it should be more, um, I don't really know how to word this, like more free-structured, like you should be able to kind of pick and choose the classes that you like to take similar to college. Um, I've, You know, I told you I'd switched my major a bunch of times, but, you know, the classes that I've taken aside from just the mandatory undergraduate ones I've got to pick, I've actually enjoyed, like, um, my two econ classes. I liked those, and I've taken one finance class, but I, I did enjoy that one. Um, it's just like when – I think when you give kids the, um, you know, the, the free reign to kind of choose what they – you know, want to put in their brain, then they're way more apt to, um, you know, be take take their schooling more seriously versus like when you're just coming to them and saying, hey, you have to learn this and, you know, it's something that they could care less about, then, yeah, obviously their, their grades probably aren't going to be as
1: good. It's interesting you talk about that free learning. I've just uh, looked it up because I know there's a school in Calabasas. Um, it's called the Muse School, it's run by. Uh, James Cameron the the film director his wife and her sister and that has a pretty free and open schooling program whereby they I, I, I might not get it completely right without trying to look it up uh, as I explain it but I'm pretty sure it's uh it's focused on allowing you to pick a topic per semester and that's pretty much all you study and that could be anything you know you, you might want to study Italian cooking or you might then want to study the piano but it's completely free form of schooling, which is kind of unique. And I'm with you, really. I mean, you know, this is a school system that was set up in Victorian times to teach people to work in factories. And I think we've kind of grown beyond needing to learn facts and memorize facts when we have supercomputers in our pockets. And I don't completely understand the value of it anymore. Um, And I guess that's you went through that transition, Dylan, yourself, During the college program as well of rethinking education,
0: yeah, totally. I mean, it's a lot of things. They'll they'll you know you'll study up on something and it'll be like, all right, well, no phones or or no computers. It's like it's memorization. You're like, well, no, I have a phone that I can look up anything in a split second, (laughs) and like in in the real world, if you want to call it that. And so it's definitely outdated. Um, You know, there's definitely like information is free. I loved I love Jeff Booth and his kind of thesis of like technological deflation because like I lived it. I was like reading this book while in school, ignoring all my classes, like like Will. <laughs> and like, I was like, wait, why am I paying for this? Cause I'm, I'm learning for free right now. Or like, you know, with the $14 book I just bought. And so, you know, that, that's real. And like the information that's out there for free every single day, like what Michael Saylor's doing with Saylor Academy, all that stuff. Like, I don't think college or you're like the school system looks the same in 10 years. I mean, at least I hope not, you know, like the, the, people going six figures into debt to to quote-unquote get a good job in the future. It's like people are just kind of shoved into this um, and it's kind of unfortunate because they're they're putting themselves decades behind in, in terms of
1: time. So, so listen, you both got newsletters. Uh, Will, tell me a bit about yours. How long has it been running? What's it about? Uh, how many subscribers have you got? And why the fuck is it free?
2: Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, so like... A while back, Pom came to me and he said, you know, I really find this on-chain stuff interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunities here. Um, and so, like, the kind of intro level way we, we decided to kind of do something here is just create a newsletter and send it out to as many people as we interested and just kind of promote the thing. So, to me, I, I wanted to make it free because I think there are some good newsletters out there. Of course, Willie has a newsletter and, um, you know, Willie's, obviously one of the, you know, people I really look up to, but you know, it is fifty dollars a month. So I, you know, I was kind of approaching it saying there's a lot of people that are interested in this stuff, but perhaps on a fifty dollars a month. So what if there was, you know, some some way that they could get access to this information completely free? And and you know that was kind of where we birthed the idea for the newsletter out of. Um, so every week I just send out a you know basically short synopsis of everything that I see in the week from an on chain perspective, and then um, we also Pomp and I do the uh, the weekly podcast where it's pretty much just a reiteration of. Everything in the newsletter, um, and so, like, yeah, we we don't charge for it. I mean, I, I do run an advertisement over it, and it's at the end of it. But you know, and that you know, that's kind of the trade off for um, making it free because I, I think like there is a lot of talent that is yet to come into the space in terms of, like the on chain space. I think it's just so early. And Dylan, it, you know, he he doesn't like super involve himself in the on chain. Like, I know he looks into it, but I am sure he'll agree. Like, there is stuff now that we didn't even have. Three months ago we didn't even have six months ago and then when you look back like two years um when i when i first started learning about this a lot of it was watching these videos with um willie and, and david well on tone vase's youtube channel from like 2018 because that's the only content that was that was like available on this stuff back then and the stuff that they're talking about just seems archaic now um, so it's been cool to see the space move so fast, and I think like getting the information out to as many people as possible um, is just going to lead to further acceleration in terms of like the new metrics and stuff that we have available.
1: Yeah, but if you there is a halfway house, I think Dan Held does it, where he does both a free and a paid newsletter. And I mean, I don't know the thing between you and Pomp, but like if you're looking for an income stream so you can think about your college, um, you you know quite rapidly could build. Build it up through that. But look, I'll, that's down to you. I'll leave you to it. Uh, tell people where they can subscribe now so we'll uh, so we can ping some people over to it.
2: Yeah, sure. Um it's btc by wc3.substack.com. Or you can just go to my Twitter and just click the link in my bio.
1: Next up, I talked to Will and Dylan more about on-chain and macro, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, let's talk about Gemini, my exclusive exchange sponsor, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling. I tell you this every week, I'm just stacking. I'm using their app. I'm using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With their streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, and that's all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot Next up, we have Revolut. Now, listen, as many of you know, because I've been talking about this for months, Lois TSB, the bank I was with for 25 years, they closed down all of my accounts. They obviously do not like Bitcoin. And then Revolut reached out to me. They saw my tweets. They said, Peter, come on, come to Revolut. We're the bank for you. So I did. I set up my account. It only took me a couple of hours, and everything was moved across. They like Bitcoin. They want to support Bitcoiners. And now Revolut are offering £20 or $20 to all new customers that sign up and complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to do, and you can create your card and add it to Apple Pay immediately to get that cash in your pocket. Now, you know what I would do? I would convert that straight to Bitcoin. Now, this is a new relationship. We are working hard at this. There's a lot to cover, and I'm hopefully going to get someone from the Revolut team onto the show soon to talk about this. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you do want to sign up and get the bonus, please head over to Revolut.com forward slash WBD. That is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BlockFi, who were pleased to recently announce that they have launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for those of you living out in the US who are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the Block 5 Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases and there is no annual fee. Not just that. For the first three months of card ownership, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin, and everything you spend over $50,000 will be 2% in Bitcoin. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. And this week, we finish up with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. So I want to talk a little bit about on-chain data because um, it is something I cover every month with Willie as well on my podcast. I know you're covering, covering it with Pomp. Um it has had some critics recently. Um, I've seen some of the technical traders be quite critical of unchained data. Um, my kind of view on it was, and I talked about this with Willie, because after the big market crash, my YouTube comments were quite critical towards him. And my view of, it, of on-chain data, it's another tool. You know, it's not a crystal ball. It can give you information. Sometimes it's right, but you can't account for market crashes, coordinated FUD. Massive sell-offs based on that Elon Musk tweeting weird shit. You can't account for that in on-chain data. You can only just look at the data it's given you, and and that's another tool you can long, use alongside TA and you know other things. So, what about you? Have, have you noticed the criticism? What's your thoughts on it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like my Twitter notifications have been pretty much just wrecked over the last month and a half. Um, and and the way I see it is similar to you, like on-chain is another tool, like you said, similar to TA or order book analysis or, you know, whatever you're, whatever kind of analysis that you're doing. But it should be used in unison with other things, in my opinion. Um, you know, you can look at on-chain to kind of get the more broader macro um, picture of the market, right? But then you can use, like, order book analysis and TA to get, like, a more precision entry into your trade. So, yeah, I think, like, also looking for confluence amongst those things is, is pretty important. So, for example, like uh, Willie and I had been watching for this supply squeeze that had been forming, and price kept going sideways down, and people were calling us crazy. But at the same time, this guy that I met on Twitter, his name is, uh, he goes by John Wick, but he's like this options trader, and he had been talking about this volatility squeeze. And and we were kind of messaging back and forth. We were like, this is really interesting. You kind of have this synergy between like TA and on-chain is kind of lining up here. And then all of a sudden, we had 10 straight uh, green daily candles. So- I think it, it's it's a great tool. I think you could get a lot of signal using solely that tool, but it's best used, you know, with other things and looking for confluence amongst, you know, different all those different tools that you're using. Um, and then yeah, like you know, Willie and I I think we're both bullish in, in that like 60 K range. Um, and and what happened is you know, you you had these outside factors that I don't think on-chain were really taking into account. Um, and also, I, I don't think we were thinking about the, the whole Grayscale thing, and we can get into that too. Uh, but I think that played a, a big role in the the drawdown, some of these ARBs going away. But in general, like, you know, Elon coming out and, and the China FUD, like, that that wasn't, it, you know, you couldn't have predicted that with on-chain. But once once those events happened, then you then you did see that um, get reflected in, in the fundamentals. So I think sometimes... Um, you know, on-chain leads price, where you have you know on-chain saying one thing, and then it takes a while to get reflected in price. But then, of course, sometimes price reflects on-chain, right? Like if we nuke, or all of a sudden some unexpected outside factor happens, then you're going to see that change in fundamental investor activity that you couldn't have predicted before because you couldn't have seen that event. So, like, it should just be used in discretion, and you know, it's like you said, it's not a crystal ball. It's not going to work a hundred percent, you know, at the time, but. It is, you know, highly reliable given that there aren't other outside factors that occur.
1: How uh, how wrecked were your replies?
2: Yeah, m- my mentions were pretty bad. Um, got a lot of angry messages. I think just in general, when whenever the price goes down, you know, people look for those who still, you know, aren't aren't pessimistic as as they are, and then you know they they kind of like uh, I don't know. They just collectively look to bring those people down, and I guess drag them down into uh, the same state of mind they are, but yeah, I've, I've never seen anything like that in general. And I don't know, it's been kind of a good experience for me to thicken up my skin a little, I guess.
1: What about your DMs? Your DMs open? Yeah,
2: I have my DMs open, um, I'll check them like once a day and just kind of give it a scroll through. But yeah, there's some nasty stuff in the DMs as well. Like just, you know, oh, you're an idiot and all this kind of stuff. But
1: Yeah, you got to learn to ignore that. Uh, It can get pretty rough and brutal out there sometimes. And I think what it is is I think some people have taken on-chain analysis as a crystal ball because sometimes, you know, some of the things I've discussed with Willie are unnailed and correct. He absolutely nails it. He sets a bottom. That bottom is correct. You know, and I think some people have ended up using it as a crystal ball. Um, and have probably over-leveraged themselves, taken risks they shouldn't have, and potentially got wiped out, like leveraged trading got wrecked. And, you know, it's it's not a good experience getting wrecked. And, you know, if you're of weak character, you want to lash out and blame somebody. But really, every one of those people who's, you know, giving you shit really needs to self-reflect and uh, look at themselves because they're responsible for their own decisions, and uh, they still need to be grateful. So I'm glad you're uh, you're able to deal with that. Okay, um, uh, I haven't in the past, and it's, it's it is a brutal experience. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad you're okay to deal with that. I've Got another quick question on that? Then I want to flip it over to Dylan. Uh, in terms of like Willie, you know, I obviously talk to him every month, and yeah, you know, he's been doing long chain data for quite some time. Do you two have a different style in any way? Have you noticed that you got a different style?
2: Yeah, I think um, obviously I'm, I'm heavily influenced by Willie, um, but I, I would say that we're, we're similar for the most part, but Willie is a, a bit more creative than me, I think. Um, I, I just kind of like take ratios and just like to compare things and just like kind of see what sticks. But I think Willie is a really um, critical thinker, and he, t- he takes more of an approach where he'll kind of look at a problem and say, Oh, you know, I wanna, I wanna understand this. I wanna understand this better. Um, you know, w- what what kind of things can I look at, and then like narrow it down. I guess that way. And I just kind of go through, you know, and just I'm just comparing random stuff and kind of seeing what sticks. So I, I kind of just take like a crash course more uh, like approach to it. Where I think Willie's is like much more methodical and like thought out, and and the way that he you know thinks about what he wants to uh, like compare and and you know how he wants to filter through the data and stuff, but yeah, if, for the most part, it's pretty similar.
1: I'm, I'm not sure how much you actually trade against the own data, your own data that you're looking at. But Willie is like a experienced long term Bitcoin trader, so he is trading against his data, so he's got real skin in the game against that. I mean, you may be doing exactly the same to the same levels. I don't mm-hmm. know, but you know, experience is another thing, right? That, you know, I think everybody knows you've been, you know, only doing this for some time, and. Uh, I think the work you're doing is great. Um, I I use so whenever I got an interview with uh, Willie, I, I look at both of your Twitter feeds and look at the things that you're saying and, and compare and contrast, and that helps me, you know, prepare for my my interviews. Uh, so I appreciate the work you're doing. What about you, Dylan? How much time have you spent looking on chain? What are your thoughts on it?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I so I think there's a couple things. Like I I love looking at on chain. I love like so for. For what I do, um, I like do all the content for Bitcoin Magazine's premium product that they just stood up. Um, it's a paid product, but we we put together like twenty pieces of content a, uh, a month um, about on-chain data, derivative markets, and then like, global macro, and like kind of put it all together. Um, and like, there's a couple things there. So like one, myself personally, and basically everybody at Bitcoin Magazine, um, you know, it's kind of like a maximalist crowd um we have like this like a 10 year even longer than that like multi decade long thesis that like bitcoin is the going to be the global reserve currency it's going to be worth the equivalent of hundreds of trillions of dollars and for most people all you have to do is acquire and hold right um but there is there is a pretty pretty large market demand for um maybe not day to tr- day you know so called trading but um just understanding what's happening in the market and Basically, the most transparent market the world has ever seen, which is which is why on-chain data, um, especially like the the derivative markets, all that stuff is so fascinating because you can see real-time, like flows, who's acquiring, who's not, like how long a UTXO is has been dormant and if it's moved or not, all these sort of things, and in a kind of a probabilistic way, a lot of it can can help you make decisions about the market and and what to do or whether to de-risk or not. So. Um, you know, kind of putting those all those things together and and seeing like like Will, for instance, and and all the on chain guys for like two months, um, myself included, we saying like, hey, like there's a supply, there's going to be some sort of supply shock here. It's it's happening, and everybody in the derivatives market's short, meaning like all these guys that are trading perpetual swaps or on Binance or doing this, they're just they're they're going over the derivatives market and they're shorting, and meanwhile people on the spot people are literally just hoarding utxos they're hoarding coins at a pretty fast pace something's going to pop and like nothing happened for a while we trended to 29 will and everybody was getting was getting absolutely dunked on and then what happened there was a huge pop so like putting all these things together um it can kind of you know i think on chain sometimes lags for a long time but it's it's still pretty fascinating just being able to to basically look at the capital flows of, of this asset. It's unlike anything we've seen.
1: Well, that's the thing about this kind of data, right? People are hungry for it. Uh, it doesn't matter how interesting Bitcoin is and uh, how much you want to teach people about the fundamentals of Bitcoin or what it can do for countries like El Salvador. Facts are, uh, the day doesn't lie. If, if I look at my show downloads, outside of my interview with uh, Bukali, uh, my second biggest show is a show with Willie uh, Woo. And I think... Two of my top five shows ever have been shows with Woody Woo. And if you go to my top 10, it's more like three or four. People are absolutely hungry for this information. There are a lot of people out there who don't really give a fuck about the Bitcoin fundamentals. They just see it as an asset to trade. And that's something we have to accept. You know, not everyone is going to buy into it. But something you said was pretty interesting, Dylan. I'm going to quote you. The price does not go up on good news. Price goes up when the marginal seller has been exhausted. The marginal seller can be exhausted based on good news though, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there is some causality there, but um, I like that, that a lot of people look at news events or, you know, like even with the El Salvador announcement, it was like, oh my God, a country, and it's a small country, right? Like six million people, twenty-four billion dollar GDP, but it was like a country just adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Bitcoin's thirty-nine K. Like, are we be at, are we about to pop? And it was like, nope, we're about to trend down to thirty for the next two and a half months. <laughs> and I think some people are like, you know, what the hell? But that's, I mean, that's Bitcoin. It's like every single day, like I think when you kind of come to understand Bitcoin, the HODL mindset, the sat- stacker mindset, you, you realize there's, there's a floor of people buying every single day. Like I buy every single day regardless of price. So do probably you two, maybe and, and millions of other people around the world and that number is growing. And on the other side, you have people that are, that are selling or, or trading or wash trading or doing all this stuff. But every single day, the amount of Bitcoin that's put away for the next decade, two, three, maybe forever—that's never gonna hit the market—goes up. That the free float gets gets a little bit smaller, and so the marginal seller is is often what kind of drives a price. And and when we're kind of consolidating, like we have for the last three months, anybody that's really wanted to sell is has you know kind of sold around here, and so um, that's why we see like especially after all time highs break, you see Bitcoin go parabolic and trade like no other asset on the planet. It's just because of these supply dynamics that no other asset on the planet has ever seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're super right. It's quite interesting, one of the other things that I noticed, I think it was when Elon Musk announced that Tesla were going to accept Bitcoin for the buying of cars, and the price suddenly shot up. And I think within a few hours, it had come back down to the same price. And when I saw that, I kind of realized, like, hold on, why isn't, why isn't news affecting this? And sure, we get momentum at points, but... Um, I think that I think there's like a wider momentum that happens, but there's a bit, like you say, there's a bit of a lag with this. Uh, what about you, Will? Like, I, I, I know with Willie, I think I spoke to him last time, and he said about this. He said he doesn't ever trade based on news; he only trades based on the data. I guess you're in a similar position.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the, the way I look at it is like. Over the last two three months, um, a lot of the coins that have been sold have all been young coins. So, like Dylan said, you can look at you know the UTXOs, look at you know separate them by age, by the size of you know the wallets or entities that are holding those UTXOs. Um, and so, what you've seen is like the average age of of the UTXOs being moved has been trending down and down and down over the last two three months. Um, and and so, to me. You know, what what that what that's showing is it's basically, you know, noobs in the market. These aren't we're not seeing selling from these long term holders or, or experienced market participants, right? It's it's all uh new market entrants. And um, I, I suspect a lot of this has to do as well with with uh, some of these arbitrage opportunities that popped up at the end of the you know at the end of twenty twenty, beginning of this year. Um, and so some of these sellers were people that you know, I had come into Bitcoin in this market neutral way, did not care about Bitcoin as hard money that's gonna be the new monetary premium for the whole world. They were just looking at this as a number on a screen and the trade was over, so they move out. And and um so I think I think that played a, a big role in the move down. Um miners miners uh selling, you know, the force selling from the uh hash migration I like I think that played some role but at least in the data that I look at, it didn't play as big of a role as some people had had uh, stated. Because, I mean, according to Glassnode, the miners sold about a little over five thousand coins um, in like mid-May to, to mid-June. So, that you know, that's not anything that was gonna really affect the market. Um, you know, I, I just think it was it was new. You know, hedge funds that had gotten in recently. You saw this huge uptick in like new whales. Um, you know, kind of in like January, December, January, of that time frame, which kind of aligns with some of these ARB opportunities popping up. And then um, also, then you look at when the number of whales started trending down, that also uh, correlates with some of these ARB opportunities going away. So I suspect that that played a huge role. But at the same time, you have, um, you know, these, like you were saying, these these long-term buyers, right? These uh, these people with conviction that are just coming in and they they keep stacking. They don't really care about the price. And so you look at you know these smaller wallets. I know Willie's talked about this on your show before, but um, you know when you look at these smaller wallets, they have been hockey sticking upwards in terms of their holdings over the last month or two. Um, I've actually created a ratio taking like all of retail's holdings. So any entity on the blockchain with less than 10 BTC, and then you're comparing that to the overall supply and circulation. And so like when you plot that out over time. What you see is that retail holds a, a larger and larger portion of supply, and then at the same time, when you take whales and you do that the same thing, um, what, and you filter out like you know the purpose ETF, you filter out grayscale, you filter out exchanges, because these are all the all these entities recognize are recognized as um, as whales on chain, right? So you have to filter those out. What you see is that over time, whales are distributing their coins. So you have this dichotomy where. Retail is is steadily buying right over time, increasingly more so. Um, whales are distributing their coins, and so to me, what what that shows is just really healthy network growth. Um, and then, you know, in the recent last two months, it's been interesting to see whale. I mean, uh, retail actually outpacing the buying of whales. So every single cohort has been buying, which is. First of all, like this is a side thing, but like it's unlike anything that you you've ever seen going back in Bitcoin's history. Literally every single cohort is buying right now. um, When you filter out for those ETFs and stuff, but at the same time, retail's been buying at a at a greater pace than whales have, and I think they have outpaced them as of last week. The last time I looked, by like twenty five or thirty thousand BTC. So. Yeah, I mean, like, people really don't give as much credit to the little guys. Um, and then, like, you also aren't considering the fact that a lot of retail, they keep their coins on exchanges. So, you know, some of these um, some of these entities that I'm looking at, you know, they're showing, um, they could be, like, custody solutions or, um, you know, also when we're talking about coins moving on to exchanges, like... There, if if we were somehow able to like look into these custody providers or just the exchanges in general and see how many um, retail participants like held held however much however many coins on on those uh, platforms, I suspect like the number of UTXOs held by these small guys is way higher than than what we what we see right now. But over time, you do see it um, you know that positive trend of like distribution where like yeah, people still talk about like. Bitcoin being highly concentrated, and to an extent, that's kind of true. But Bitcoin's only twelve years old, and so to see like this natural distribution progression over time, I think is like really good.
1: Do we know if on exchanges that uh, customers are actually buying UTXOs, or are they buying a a number in a spreadsheet, and they're only given a UTXO when they withdraw?
0: That's what I think it is. I think it's just that exchanges have like an SQL database, and like you know they'll shuffle around UTXOs when need be, but. For the most part, I I don't think that coins are moving on on chain um, unless they need be, and that's how Bitcoin scales. Yeah, like that's okay, you know.
1: Yeah, and that is fine, and and also it just saves on uh, misallocation of uh, Sats for for allocating UTXOs for each person. Um, okay, the um, there's a really interesting point though there because Willie made the same point to me. He said retail drives bull markets. So I was like, no, surely it's not. Surely it's like. Tesla or maybe if Apple came in and and uh, and actually like he came to prove that thesis was right, uh, especially in the, the last show we did. And I think what it is is it's a bit like you say you've got these hedge funds. They've made an investment. It might be a million, 10 million, whatever, hundred million, and they've suddenly seen like whatever, maybe a three x, a five x, and eight x. You know they've delivered for their fund. Why do they need to take any risk further? It makes makes total sense for them to withdraw their Bitcoin. I think that. Um, is it roughers the the gold people? I think they bought and they sold a bit, and then I think they sold everything. So I think they've delivered. I think you're right. Uh, I think that growth in retails super interesting as well. And one of the things I wanted to ask you then, Dylan, is that you know the price does, the price doesn't go up on news, but you're a bit of an expert in macro analysis. You know, we talked before about inflation rising and bond yields with. Uh, Greg, we talked about equities having these like crazy valuations. Do you think that is just the narrative which is feeding into retail, which is making them interested in Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's just there's just nowhere else to go. I mean, especially for me, like I evaluated the the landscape of where to allocate assets, you know, to to preserve purchasing power, to grow purchasing power, and it's like the reality is okay. Every bond on the planet, essentially, especially if you don't use like bogus CPI metrics, it's giving you a real yield. Like, I don't, I'm not going to buy treasury bonds. Okay. Check for equities, the price of any equity. And like, we will talk about this a little bit earlier, but there's like discount cash flow models. If, if the cost of capital zero or negative, well, the fair price of an equity is like infinity. So you see like equities just absolutely ripping. It's like PE ratios on every equity, especially like. You know so-called growth stocks who can like apple can borrow for like no cost negative cost so like what's the what's the price of apple what's the price of like all these fang stocks that like are good companies they're great companies but not a great price and so so I think bitcoin is is kind of a fix for a broken cost of capital a manipulated cost of capital but before if there was no Bitcoin right like you know they in the 1940s and Lynn Alden talks about this a lot. They basically kept bond yields below below inflation for like the entire decade, but they had confiscated gold. So so you really had no choice. You had nowhere to run. You you had to hold bond yields, and you got screwed, or you could allocate to equities, and but that was basically it, right? Like, or you could buy real estate, but it's essentially all kind of the same. It's all kind of the same trade. Um, and so with Bitcoin, it's like, yeah, you can you can use financial repression. You can keep bond yields low. You can try to inflate the debt away, but ultimately, like, I have an escape valve. And so, I think more and more people realize that Bitcoin is the escape valve that nobody can mess with, um, and like financial repression, you know, yield curve control, all this stuff—the greatest monetary experiment ever—across all, you know, across the world, all global central banks, they're all doing the same thing. Um, Bitcoin's that escape valve, and so it's still a drop in the bucket. Seven hundred billion is tiny, um, but you know, just one percent of of flows from. You know, global equities or bond markets, and Bitcoin's going to two or three X. Is
1: the uh, is this macro analysis become like your own rabbit hole? Because you speak so fluently, on what's actually happening? Um, I'm, and when you do it, you come across as like a passion for your understanding of it, not for not a passion for the reality. You obviously understand this financial oppression, as you said. But is, has that become a, a different rabbit hole for you? Hundred percent.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I was kind of. That's how I kind of just like stumbled upon Bitcoin. Was like I was interested in finance and economics and all that, um, and I kind of just like learned about Bitcoin or crypto or whatever. Like at the same exact time, um, and like kind of put put the puzzle pieces together at the same time. or like in March of twenty twenty, especially, um, I was I was buying Bitcoin before that, but I didn't really. I wasn't fully orange pilled, and then equity markets tanked by thirty five percent in like a month. And, every, and like the treasury market went no bid, and everybody's like was like running around on fire, and Bitcoin went down fifty percent in a day, and then it was like the Fed came out and was like, all right, we're buying corporate debt, we're gonna stuff two trillion dollars into the bond market in like a month, and we're going q e infinity until said otherwise, and I was like, okay, wait, like there's no all there there's no alternative like <laughs> there's like i bitcoin that's it like for all these other reasons that we you know we've talked about 21 million hard cap supply no one can mess with it um you know it's like hard money in the digital age like traditionally like it's it's pretty sad to say and I said this last time like if bitcoin didn't exist I'd be like buying gold coins like it sounds depressing as hell but like <laughs> that's just the reality of like where we are in the current you know macro environment it's like you need to fi- you need to find hard assets because anywhere else and and you're going to you're going to get screwed um and so yeah I definitely have some sort of passion for for like macro and kind of Bitcoin as as the answer from like the financial lens, because that's just kind of that's another way that like I orange pill people, you know, like for that, for the person that doesn't know anything about macro, I'm like, hey, yeah, it's money that they can't print. But for someone in finance, it's like, hey man, what are you gonna do? Buy equities at 250% of GDP or, you know, buy bonds when global debt to GDP is four hundred percent? Like good luck. Have fun, you know? Um, so yeah.
1: I'm going to quote you again as well, because um, it's relevant to a conversation I had recently with Lynn Alden. Uh, so we reviewed Taleb's paper, and one of the parts we talked that about was whether Bitcoin is a, a inflation hedge. And whilst it's been a narrative piece, I've echoed and said, yeah, Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. You know, I did have some kind of doubts in my mind, because it depends on the timescale. Bitcoin might not necessarily be a hedge of, in inflation over a short period in time. It's not a hedge of it's not a hedge against inflation if uh, you bought in uh, three months ago and then you had to sell. Um, It has to be against certain timeframes. And I'm just going to quote you here. You said it's important to remember that Bitcoin at this stage in its adoption phase is not a hedge against inflation, but rather perpetual credit expansion. So it's kind of echoing what you just said there, but can you just go a little bit more into detail on this perpetual credit expansion? But explain it in a way like someone like myself who just doesn't understand this can understand it and what it means and what the threat here is
0: yeah so like you'll you'll see a lot of people depending on the price action of bitcoin you you know if it's going up if it's going down if it's if it's March of 2020 when bitcoin tanks with everything else and they say ha bitcoin's not a hedge against the financial system see you know it went down during the biggest liquidity crisis ever um and and so it's like it's either not an inflation hedge or not a you know it's it doesn't work against deflation and like all this stuff, but I think that's taking like a microscopic view of things. Um, and in my opinion, and I've I've kind of been you know hitting this point home a lot recently. I think that Bitcoin over the the medium to long term is a hedge both against inflation in terms of credit expansion and deflation, which is credit contraction. And so, for 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 two reasons or, or many reasons, but um, credit expansion, we can think of that as as you know, QE or basically in a fiat currency system, money is created through lending. So, like a commercial bank, there's deposits at the commercial bank. They extend a loan. They fractionally reserve those deposits, and they extend out a loan. And, and in that process, money is created. Money, the money supply increases. the The bank now has an asset, and the other person has a liability in cash. Um, and the money supply increased in that in that sense. Um, and so. Ultimately, and this is kind of like the long term debt cycle stuff we talked about last time. Mm. There's 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 an end to to the upswing of a of a credit cycle, boom, right? And that's a bust. (laughs) And so Bitcoin is is a hedge against credit expansion in the in the sense that your wealth can't be diluted away. Right. So, like if you're holding a bond, if you're holding a bond today, you're a 30 year treasury bond that's yielding, you know, 1% interest or whatever it is, you're gonna get paid back, most likely. Like you're gonna get it's gonna be money good but what does that money buy you? And so so that's that's where bitcoin comes in in the sense that it's a it's a hedge against inflation in the sense that you can't be diluted. Like they can't if if the bond market goes no bid again, well the fed's going to step in and they're going to print probably 10 trillion next time. And so, yeah, you got paid back, but what is that worth? Um and in the other sense, in a you know, in a deflationary scenario, in a true deflationary scenario and say in March of 2020 if they didn't step in, right? What would have happened? Well, all of the banks would have gone bust. The, the equity markets would have drawn down 90%. The biggest everything bubble ever would have unwound. And so in that sense, um, you, there's immense counterparty risk everywhere in the financial system. You, you're probably, if you have money in the banks, you're probably not going to get them back. Pro- brokerages would probably fail. Like, this sounds like a doomsday scenario, but that's what deflation is. Um, and in like the 1930s, it was the gold that you deposited at the bank. Yeah, it's someone else's because <laughs> there was a bunch of claims. Um and so in that deflationary scenario bitcoin is also what you want to hold because yeah it might draw down in dollar terms in nominal dollar terms because the money supply is contracting but you have you have an asset that you can hold and nobody can dilute and has it has a production cost it has a production cost that won't go away um, and in the, the worst case scenario is miners unplug and there's a difficulty adjustment and they plug back in and so so both both you know doomsday scenarios of you know, inflation, or you know, God forbid, hyperinflation or deflationary collapse. Bitcoin is this is this pristine asset that you know doesn't really care, and will keep on chugging along. Um, and I think not a lot of people understand that. And if you're looking at week to week correlations,
1: you can you can get kind of confused. Will, do you spend much time looking at the macro stuff and talking to Dylan about it? Does it influence you in any way, or are you just totally plugged into the on chain data?
2: Yeah, I, I was into it. Um when I kind of first got into Bitcoin, like I said, like I wrote a couple articles on like Bitcoin's role in the, in the macros, uh, you know, that whole picture. And, um, you know, I like Ray Dalio's work. I've read Ray Dalio's big debt crisis. I think it's another book that, uh, Dylan will probably say is, is great for anybody trying to understand the stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, just, as of lately, haven't paid as much attention to it as I used to, because I am so kind of like hyper focused in my little world, but, um, I kind of go to Dylan for that. So I'll call Dylan up and just be like, yo, what's going on? And then he'll he'll give me the spiel and he'll ramble for like 20 minutes and then I'll ramble about my stuff for 20 minutes. And that's usually how it goes. So, yeah, I I lean on uh, Dylan a little more for that lately, but it's definitely something that like I used to look into a lot.
1: Yeah, look, it's it's all fascinating data for someone like myself. It's like the combination of the two um, really helped me. So, uh, the kind of things that Dylan's talking about, that really, they just support my conviction in uh, holding Bitcoin and holding the majority of my wealth in Bitcoin. But certainly, the on-chain data uh, sometimes gives me some reassurance about uh, what's happening with the market when it's tanking, but also some confidence about about the future. Um, another topic I wanted to touch with both of you, on, I'm, I'm going to defer first, really, to Dylan because I think this might be more in your bag, Dylan. The this infrastructure bill, how much have you looked at it? Uh, obviously, working at Bitcoin Magazine, I mentioned quite a bit
0: yeah um you know i've I've seen the kind of the proposals and all that um not ideal, but uh I think ultimately you know it's more of short term inconvenience if it passes or you know if the amendment isn't isn't passed um it's pretty vague, so I think the worry is that um lightning nodes miners for for other crypto in general, not bitcoin, but like dexes and all this stuff um you know all coins are are definitely far more. <laughs> far more at risk. So um, but yeah, I think ultimately, um, it just wouldn't be ideal and it'd probably drive away innovation. But at the same time, I'm gonna still run my node. Um, not gonna not gonna, you know, bow down to to tyrannical rules. And I'm not saying that it is per se, but um, you know, it like the Bitcoin network will chug along and you can't stop an idea whose time has come. Um and so, uh, like, onerous regulations will will happen. I mean, like it's a hundred percent, it's a certainty. It's going to happen globally. Um, you're going to have more people, or you know, nations that are like China, that are like, "Hey, like, get out. We don't want you." And you're, at the same time, we're going to have you know, uh, countries, but also states like Texas, um, you know, maybe Florida, other other uh, jurisdictions that are saying like, "No, we want you. We want Bitcoin. We want innovation. Um, come here." And so, you know, it's not ideal. Um, but hopefully it gets changed, and and regardless, um, you know, cypherpunks write code. <laughs> you know, we're we're just going to build around it. And ultimately, what some bureaucrats write or sign on a bill doesn't doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Texas and Florida. Uh, I had a conversation, two conversations yesterday actually. Um, one specifically with Parker Lewis, saying that actually Bitcoin is a is a very kind of Texan idea. I uh, Talked to Dan Held about it, or a very kind of almost Republican idea in that. Um, Really, this expansion of the credit, the money printer, uh, that's going to really affect people, uh, especially if we see much higher levels of inflation. And politicians are there to protect their, and look after their constituents. They're meant to be there to support uh, the voters. And it always feels like the Republican states do that a bit more at an individual level, rather than collectively. And so if there are high signs of inflation coming in and, you know, people want to use Bitcoin as that, that hedge. Uh, it, it does feel like the Republican states are the one to naturally fight back and say, no, like, we're going to be supporting Bitcoin because this is what our constituents are asking for.
0: Parker Lewis had like an, an excellent tweet. I think it was yesterday or today, maybe. He was like, liberals will love Bitcoin when they realize what it means for low-income families. Democrats will hate it. Conservatives will love Bitcoin when they realize what it means for, for balancing the budget. Republicans will hate it. And it's like it's so true. I mean, like <laughs> the the kind of the the parasites on the system. Um, you know, I'm not talking to anyone in particular, but you could probably name a few. Um, they hate Bitcoin, and they're gonna hate Bitcoin. And if they haven't realized it, like what it means, like like Brad Sherman, for instance, right? Like he's like two years ago, he was beating the drum. He's like, we need to ban Bitcoin. It's a it's a threat to the dollar in our reserve currency status. And ever and like you know, half the people were like, oh, look at this old crank. But like Brad Sherman's right, you know, like. It is a threat. And anybody that, like, you know, I think Michael Saylor has been like, no, 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 no. It's not a threat. Like, don't worry, guys. And like Michael Smail- Michael Saylor is a smart guy. Like he knows what he's doing, obviously. Um, but I think there is there is some merit to kind of downplaying it. But at the same time, like there's just this this reality that that Bitcoin is a threat to dollar hegemony. Bitcoin is a threat to what Congress has been doing for the last 50 years. Um, and you know. There's certain people that will, you know, throw the throw everything they got at stopping it. Um, so yeah, yeah.
1: sailor's interesting at the moment. Like, it's a real tricky one because he's tr- he's walking this fine line between wanting to be like a bitcoiner and supporting uh, the cyber hornets as he keeps referring to, while at the same time trying to divert that threat of regulation, or you know, in some ways signaling that he supports certain amounts of regulation if it feels like, like let's let's put a stick and plaster over this, let's buy ourselves more time. Um, I f- I'm finding it hard to actually deal with at the moment, uh, on a personal level. I'm like, hmm, we're having someone with a very high profile controlling one in 200 Bitcoins, publicly playing a game of chess with regulators. So I'm, I'm not convinced how healthy it is, actually. Because I wonder if that control of that much Bitcoin has put him in a position where he's having to walk this kind of fine line between it, maybe it becomes kind of unhealthy because the the views and thoughts that are coming out sometimes feel a little bit uh, like they're contradicting themselves at times.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's definitely in a tough spot. Um, you know, I think he's kind of, he's, whether he he meant that or not, he's like kind of the face of this, or, you know, at least to some people, or he's, you know, one of the biggest faces. Um, and so his his words have a lot of weight, but, you know, ultimately... Is just another node on the network um and that you know some people may think that's a wild understatement but that's that's the truth you know um the regulatory landscape all this stuff like bitcoin's gonna keep chugging along um and you know like short-term you know weeks months years even um a lot of this stuff is like you know seems crazy or like the, this regulation it's so burdensome but like you know bitcoins bitcoins died and come back plenty of times and I'm not saying it's gonna die but like um, you know it's it's here to stay, and then any regulation or anything like people are just gonna route around it. Like they tr- like look at the war on drugs, right? Like Bitcoin's information. How do you stop it? Like I can run a, a node routed on Tor, and like you know if they, if you make privacy a crim- like a criminal act. Well, guess what? The only people that are gonna have privacy are criminals. Or are like so you know if you make Bitcoin a criminal, then well criminals are gonna use Bitcoin, and they're not gonna be able to do anything about it. And so um, you know I think regulations in the state and all that stuff like we have to worry about it and and some people are like you know don't call your senator like that's against the ethos of Bitcoin and I don't think that's true like I mean call your senator right but like at the same time if your senator votes against it well <laughs> too bad because I'm gonna use Bitcoin
1: you know all right let's talk a little bit about the future uh will I'm always asking and pushing Willie for his kind of like Predictions where it tops out. What's it, how he thinks like the rest of the this year is going to play out. Is it just going to be a traditional bull run where we're going to see um you know a squeeze towards the end of it, we're going to see a uh, you know supply squeeze and see that kind of like end the bull market four five x. Uh, what are your kind of feelings on it? And like I'm not going to hold you to this. I know you've only been looking at this data for a, for a short period of time, but like I, I'm still interested in your views on that.
2: Yeah, I think like as far as kind of trying to. Make a prediction for, for the end of cycle. I think that's uh, really difficult to do. I think you can only um, really get a grasp of perhaps what's going to go on over the next couple of weeks to maybe month or two based on the data uh, that you have, you know, currently. But just you know, based on Bitcoin's historical performance, we do have you know some modeling around um, how we can kind of predict uh, Bitcoin's you know uh, theoretical you know price peak. Um, you know, Willie has his top model right now. That's, um, I checked it this morning, actually, it's showing $176,000 is kind of the, the on-chain uh, price ceiling, while uh, Delta price, which is served historically um, as Bitcoin's price floor, that's right around 14 k So that's, that's quite the range in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I, I think like... Over the next couple of weeks to maybe a month or two, based off of some of these like accumulation trends we talked about earlier, um, I, I suspect we're going to see higher prices than we are now short term. You know, we're still technically in this range. We could come back down and maybe retest the middle of the range, you know, around like 35, 36K. But, you know, over the next couple of weeks or so, I suspect we're going to start to see some of these um, aspects of the, the supply shock that we've been talking about um, start to get priced in.
1: So you think we're uh, most likely going to be heading back up? Uh... Yeah,
2: I think the big thing is when we start going up. Um, uh, what I'll be looking for is: is this a dead cat bounce, or is this like bull run continuation? Which obviously I lean on the latter. But if we started to go up, and then all of a sudden you saw these long term holders who have been buying, um, if you started to see them dump, you know, basically looking for some exit liquidity and trying to like sell the dead cat bounce. Like to me, that that would be a really bad sign. Um, So we'll have to see once once we theoretically get this price move out of this range, up in you know from forty two k, it's pretty much just air between forty two k and like forty nine. But we'll have to see in that range once we get up towards forty nine k, which I think we will. Do those long term holders just start taking that as equity, and like do they just start dumping their holdings then? Or are, or are they, you know, expecting higher prices, and are they continuing to hold? But I, I kind of lean on the latter, just because of how strong they've been accumulating. Uh, We've seen like unprecedented uh, buying from these long-term holders over, you know, the last couple months. Which, granted, some of that is short-term holders aging into that long-term holder cohort, which is they have Glassnode uses a five-month cutoff, so like some of that is. Um, Are UTXOs that were bought on March 5th, and those are just now starting to age into that long term cohort. Um, But in general, aligning that with some of the other accumulation trends we've seen, I think the vast majority of that is actually buying from these long term holders. So, yeah, that's what I would be watching to see.
1: Awesome, man. All right, Dylan, what about you? What are you working on? What are you looking at? What's your next article?
0: Uh, just dropped, uh, just dropped a monthly report for um, for July. Um, kind of talking a lot about what we what we talked about today. Um, you know, like the accumulation. That's like the the big trend, and then um, it's like stuff happening on, like underneath with the derivative markets, um, kind of whipsawing the price around. Um, for me, like I'm I'm uh, you know I, I follow a lot of the the on chain stuff, um, but I think and I don't think it happens this year or even next or Or whatnot, but I think over twenty the the twenty twenties, I think the on chain metrics, not break not break down, but like the models all break to the upside if current if the trust is lost in the system, right? Like if the you know if if the the legacy market cracks and the Fed has to or you know they all have to turn up the, the lever again, then like then Bitcoin's gonna moon in dollar terms, and like you know because that marginal seller's like wait. I don't need to sell. Like, I don't want to sell. Like, this is the only thing I want to own. Um, and so, you know, like, I, I don't know <laughs> what the top is this cycle. I, I don't, I have no clue. Um, I think we, we break all time highs this year um, in 2020 but, or 2021. But, you know, if not, then great. I'll continue to stack. Um, but, you know, definitely bullish from here. Um, and, and through the rest of 2022, I think the cycle is, you know, not going to top at December like a lot of the you know, previous models or cycles had. Um, just because of kind of this three month pullback consolidation, um, you know, if we were if we were at 100k right now, it'd be you know still still bullish, and I think we would still be at some sort of blow off top. But um, in December, but that's not where we are. So I think a longer bull run's in store.
1: I, I hope at least. Awesome. Well, listen, look, it's been great to get you both on. Uh, you Give me a lot of faith in the future that we can hand the baton on to uh, a, a smart uh, next round of people. Um, I think you both doing excellent work uh, and I, I really enjoy both of your coverage. I think Dylan, your rhythm works excellent. Uh, Will, you've been crushing it with your podcast with Pomp, but also with your um, your tweets. Uh, I think you're both doing a great job, so I appreciate everything you're doing. Uh, Dylan, we didn't talk about yours. What's your newsletter? How do people subscribe to that?
0: Uh, it's called The Deep Dive. You can just go to, to Bitcoin Magazine and, and you'll see it um, in the top right. Um, it is paid, but you can... Just give it out. uh, Give it a try for a month uh, using the code bits. Um, If not, you know, if you don't find value in it, that's cool. I totally understand. Um, But that's that's what I've been doing, and uh, I think the content's worthwhile. So, you know, appreciate you having me on, Peter. This was was awesome. You know, nice chatting with you as always. Will, I'm sure I'll I'll be talking to you later today.
1: Yeah. Well, listen. Look, uh, you were on recently, and there was really great feedback. Loved it, and uh, so more than happy to have you back on. And Will, it's nice to meet you. it's good to have you on as well, I do wish you all the best working on the number two Bitcoin podcast. I think that's a really great gig, and uh, I do think Pomp needs to get you a microphone. I'll drop in the text later and tell that tight fucker to get some money out and buy you a new mic. And uh, <laughs> but just keep doing your thing. Look, I'll pump your uh, newsletter in the show notes, and uh, I think both of them are excellent. And uh, everyone should subscribe to that. Appreciate thanks, it, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. All right, do you feel old yet? I know I did. I can't believe these two 19 and 20 years old they're absolutely crushing it this last year when I was when I was 19 I was just a fucking moron actually I'm still a moron now These two are absolutely killing it. I'm really, really pleased to see that we've got this newer breed coming through, fully understand Bitcoin. You know, they're finding their space, their expertise, Dylan with his macro analysis, Will with his on-chain analysis. I hope we get more like this. I hope this is inspiration for more kids to start thinking about, you know, getting into Bitcoin because these two are going to be way ahead of their peers. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm sure there will be plenty more appearances from them both in the coming years as I continue to do this. But if you have any feedback or you've got any questions, you know what you can do. You can jump into my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did.com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, please just go and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. And as I said, on Tuesday, I'm flying out to the Caribbean. I'm going on a two-week holiday. I'm going to be ignoring you as much as I can for a couple of weeks. I need a break. I need to recover from surgery. And you know what? I just need to do nothing for a couple of weeks. I'm really looking forward to it. Anyway, love you all. Have a great weekend, and I will see you all on Monday.